Great. Well, thank you for leading us in worship again, Joe. Uh, Today we're going to be continuing our series, Faith That Works, a a series looking at the New Testament letter of James. And specifically today we're going to be in chapter 3, verses 13 through to 17. If you've got a Bible, I would encourage you to to open it up uh, and find the letter of James. It's pretty near the back. If you head to the back and come back in by about 50 pages, you'll be more or less there or just use the index. If you really don't have a Bible, then the words will come up on the screen for you to follow along uh, and read along with us today. But I really would encourage you, as I say every time, if you do have a Bible, please uh, open it up and read for yourself. Don't just trust me uh, that the words I put on here are what it says in Scripture. I'm not going to spend a long time over an introduction today. We're going to get straight into it. We're going to read the passage uh, and then begin to see uh, what it means and how it applies to us today. So let's read together from James chapter 3, verse 13 to 17. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Let's pray uh, and then we'll begin to unpack that together. Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us by your spirit to understand and apply it in our lives today. Lord, I pray that these would not just be uh, uh, dry words on a page for us, but that you would cause it to live for us today, cause it to speak straight to our hearts. Uh, Lord, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see today as we look at your word. Amen. Okay, well, so here in these verses, James kind of paints for us and gives us two contrasting types of wisdom. One good and one bad. One from above and one from below. One heavenly, the other demonic. One true wisdom and one not truly wise at all. James wants us to know that these two types of wisdom will bear two different kinds of fruit in our lives and the fruit of our lives makes it clear which type of wisdom we're living by. We're going to look at that more in just a moment but first we need to understand that this passage, these verses that we've read hinge on one great truth. They hinge on the fact that God has designed the world to function in a specific way and for mankind to live in a specific way in order that creation and humanity might flourish 
and in flourishing might glorify God. See, the ultimate end of all of creation is to glorify its creator, to honor him, to show how good, how glorious he is. And the pinnacle, the high point of God's creation, humanity, mankind, made in God's image, were created to bring glory to the creator by reflecting his goodness and acting according to his goodness in the world in which he's placed us. Our core pursuits as a church are knowing Jesus, growing like Jesus, and going with Jesus all for the glory of God. See, we put that all for the glory of God there because actually everything we're about and everything we do as a church is driven by a desire to glorify God because it's our conviction that that is what all of creation was made for. And that includes us. God is glorified when creation flourishes, when it functions according to the order in which he created it. Because as it flourishes, it stands as a testament to his goodness. God created a good creation without blemish, without fault, without defect. And he put in place simple instructions and principles for its most fruitful existence. So life lived according to God's design is beautiful. It's free in the purest sense, and it glorifies God and recognizes him as Lord. But unfortunately, we often don't see it that way. We, as people, are often inclined to believe that freedom is the complete absence of any type of constraint, the removal of rules, freedom to do exactly what we want, when we want, where we want, with whoever we want, without anyone telling us we can't. You know, the way some people have behaved in this COVID-19 lockdown just demonstrates that to be true. We want to be in charge, to shape everything around our desires, how we want it to be, to shape it to our liking. In other words, we want to be God. And sometimes we think it would be better if we were. But that simply isn't true. Actually, we see all around us that the right restrictions actually bring freedom. They actually bring flourishing. We can be tempted to think that living in obedience to God is drudgery and restricts our freedom. But in reality, the very opposite is true. Living in obedience to God brings true freedom. It's a weak illustration, perhaps, but... Think of a train. A train is only free so long as it's on the rails. See, a train that jumps tracks is free of the rails, but it's no longer free in the truest sense of the word, or in the most important sense of the word. Actually, it's a freed 
wreck. It can't go anywhere. It's useless. It's, it's free, but, but no longer truly free. Or how about sports? I remember once going to watch my dad play rugby for a Bible college team. Uh, and one of the players had never played before. He was roped in at the last minute to make up numbers. He didn't know the rules, and he certainly didn't stick to the rules. It was complete carnage. It was carnage. And the referee really didn't have a handle on it. And at that point, no one was having fun. No one was free to enjoy the game. Augustine taught that freedom is not choice or lack of constraint, but freedom, true freedom, is being what you're meant to be. As humans, the Bible teaches that we were created in the image of God. So true freedom, then, for humanity is not found in moving away from the image of God, but instead in living it out. The closer we conform to the image of God, Jesus Christ, the freer we become. And the farther from it we drift, the more our freedom actually shrinks. James's two wisdoms that he writes about boil down to this. One is godly wisdom. And that means living as God designed us to. And the other is the opposite of that. There's no middle ground here. The other is a rejection of God and his ways. It's a wisdom that James says is marked by envy and selfish ambition. And it brings with it disorder and every evil practice we read, don't we, in verses 14 to 16. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. James actually has already in his letter helped us to see what the fruit of this sort of wisdom is. Uh, In chapter 1 he writes about those who speak out of anger and, and the fact that human anger does not produce righteousness and that we should seek to get rid of all anger and and moral filth. The fruit of earthly wisdom is speech in anger that doesn't produce righteousness. In in chapter 2, we find that the fruit of this kind of wisdom leads to honouring rich and influential and, and, and receiving them as more high and significant than the poor and lowly because somehow we think that we stand to gain something from them. This kind of wisdom leads to to judging people's value uh, according to earthly measures, rather than the fact that they're created in the image of God. And and it goes on in chapter 3, James addresses speech that comes out of this kind of wisdom too, 
We can all agree when we read it that this kind of behavior is not right. And James here says it is the fruit of wisdom that comes from the devil. It's what it looks like to live in rebellion to our creator. And we find the root of it right at the start of the Bible. We read in the first couple of chapters of Genesis the origins story of mankind as God creates the world and then gives mankind, Adam and Eve, a simple instruction. They were to enjoy the world he'd created for them, to to be fruitful, to have babies, to, to cultivate and tend to the land, bringing order to this very good creation that God had given them, to the glory of God. There was one thing that they must not do, and that was to eat of the fruit of a particular tree in the garden. But Satan came and tempted them with this kind of wisdom from below. He questioned the goodness of God, and they brought into his lie, which masqueraded itself as wisdom, and the results were catastrophic. As they rejected God and God's design for them, sin and death and sickness entered the world. They believed the lie that masqueraded as wisdom that God was holding out on them, that they didn't really need him, that his rule was an attempt to restrict them, to limit their freedom, and that true freedom would be found in living outside of the bounds of God's command. But his command was meant for their flourishing. And that was not so. You see, God's command was designed for their good, for their flourishing. And as they rejected it and embraced this worldly wisdom in place of God's wisdom. And mankind has suffered the same problem ever since. We must See this. God created the world perfectly. He designed it to function beautifully, without pain, without suffering, without chaos. Instead, order. He created us to live life and and life to the full, but we reject his ways. We think we know what we want, and we think we know what we need, but so often... We're thinking with the world's wisdom. We don't have the perspective of God to know what we really need, what will truly fulfill us. Anyone with children can attest to this in some way. My children often want something, believe they need something even, that will actually do them harm. At the shallow end, perhaps it's too many sweets, that will make them sick. At the deep end, and this is a recent example, perhaps it's being lowered from the upstairs bedroom window by their siblings on a dressing gown cord. They sincerely believe it will be fun or satisfying in some way, but as their parent, I know that it won't and that in fact it will likely bring them harm. I'm not a killjoy, I'm a loving parent. And because I love them, I won't give them what they think they want. They won't always understand. And sometimes they're very cross with me 
about not having what they want. But I'll always try to show them that there's something better and that it's for their good. And so God came as a man, Jesus Christ, as our saviour and as our example, who said he'd come that we might have life and life in all its fullness. Jesus lived as the the perfect example of human flourishing, the perfectly fulfilled human in the truest sense. Well, what did it look like? He must have had everything, right? Was he rich? No. Did he live a long life? No. He must have had a good marriage. No, he remained single. I mean, must have had great sex, lots of sex. No. He was celibate. Oh, right, but aren't those things like satisfying, fulfilling things for us? Aren't they the aim? No. But we chase after them so hard we're obsessed with sex as a society. Singleness is often seen as some kind of curse. Money is seen as the thing that will bring us freedom. And in our wisdom we believe that they will fulfill us. Now I'm not saying these are bad things. In fact, actually in the right context they can be very good things. But if we make them a pursuit, if we place our hope of fulfillment in them, they make cruel masters and they will never, never truly satisfy us. And Jesus didn't have any of them. That's interesting to note, isn't it? Instead, what did mark Jesus' earthly life? Humility, compassion, Actually, for 30 of 33 years, relative obscurity. Rejection by those in power. An early death. But more, more significant than all of that. Jesus lived in a perfect, intimate relationship and humble submission to the will of God the Father. He lived in perfect obedience to the will of God the Father. Submission to God's will and to God's ways is the only way to find true and lasting fulfillment. It begins with the humility to accept Jesus as our much-needed saviour, to recognise that we need saving, we need a rescuer, And that Christ came to accomplish that for us. It follows with asking him to help us to live like him. And realising that actually obedience to God is not the path to drudgery and boredom, but an invitation into joy. It's an invitation into true freedom and flourishing. It is for your good. God's command is good. For those whose hope is in Jesus, the law of God, the commands of Scripture are for our good. 
not for our oppression. Making your decisions in the light of what you think will bring you happiness and satisfaction now will not ultimately satisfy you. In fact, it will lead to brokenness and separation from God. Because ultimately the fruit of earthly wisdom, the fruit of chasing our appetites around the fruit of rebellion against God, James tells us here, is disorder and every evil practice. But godly wisdom is quite the opposite. We read in verse 17, the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace, reap a harvest of righteousness. We read that word submissive and there's something that often uh, we, we kind of recoil against and we think that's like some kind of dirty word in our language. It doesn't mean being a doormat. It's not a picture of someone who just kind of lies down and everyone walks all over them. This picture of submissive here is a sober thinking person who recognizes the truth and responds to it willingly and receives its instruction. What are the other hallmarks of this kind of wisdom? Well, it's pure, peace-loving, considerate, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. This is so much of what James has also already talked about in the first couple of chapters of his letter. He's been painting a picture for us of two ways of living, really, of, of a way of living away from God and a way of living life lived to the full, to the glory of God and the good of others. In chapter one, we read that true believers, those who practice true religion that God accepts, are those marked by mercy and compassion, those who care for orphans and widows, a concern for the vulnerable. In chapter two, he tells us that believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ act without partiality, not judging or treating people differently based on their wealth or social status, not seeing people for what they can add to us, but rather how we can love and serve them. He's pointed out that professed faith that doesn't find its way out in concrete acts of love and obedience is not actually true faith at all. And he's helped us see that our words should be honest, loving, life-giving, not stirring up division and envy, but instead bringing peace. James brings all these things together, all these strands that he's talked about so far come together in these verses about wisdom. These are the hallmarks of a faith that works. They are the hallmarks of true religion and these are a picture of righteousness. The fruit, the harvest, the result of obeying godly wisdom. We read, don't we, in verse 18, 
peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. When you live the way that God intended for humanity to live, this will be the result. <laughs> now we need to see that this links back to James's writing in chapter 3 about teachers, that false teachers are dangerous. And false teaching is dangerous because it stirs up these things, bitter envy, ambition, division. But at the time, it can sound so appealing. There are those in a position of teaching, of authority in the church, whose teaching is so full of worldly wisdom and not godly wisdom. And the fruit it yields is bad. It appeals to our selfishness and our pride. It's a human-centered message that allows us to sit on the throne of our lives and see God as some kind of cosmic genie who just wants to give us everything we ever wanted. He wants to make us healthy and wealthy and victorious and make all our wildest dreams come true. This isn't godly wisdom. And its fruit is bad. There are so many ways that we could image the difference in results between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. But here's a simple illustration from my family. Picture this. Uh, we've eaten dinner together as a family. We have four young children. Pudding comes out. Uh, this particular day, it's chocolate biscuits. Now, there are only three of their favorite kind of biscuit left. But all four children want those three. Hmm. Everyone wants them. Now this can go one of two ways. Either everyone is looking out for themselves, thinking of themselves first. I want it for myself. Or someone can think of others first and say they're happy not to have it. That's godly wisdom and living the way God intended us to. Just think about the difference in atmosphere created by those two scenarios. Scenario one, everyone is after it. If any of you have young children, you will know what that looks like at home. What's the atmosphere? Arguments, conflict, probably shouting, sadly, anger, disorder, division, <laughs> trying to justify why they should be the one to have it. No one in that moment is having fun. As parents, that's not enjoyable. As for our children, when they're arguing in that way, it's not enjoyable. No one is enjoying that moment. The fruit is bad. But how about scenario two? Well, there's peace. There's peace. <laughs> the Bible teaches this kind of wisdom. We read, don't we, in, in the book of Philippians, that we should do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility to consider others as better than ourselves. So when all of us want those three biscuits, <laughs> we encourage our children to think first of their siblings to consider others as better than themselves. 
That advice isn't always followed, but when it is, the result is peace. It's good fruit. Think it's just children who behave like that? (laughs) Just look at how many adults went out panicking, buying in exactly the same way, just on a bigger scale, panic buying loo roll and hand sanitizer. Did that bring them peace doing that? Well, no. No, it didn't. They were still filled with anxiety and fear. Maybe I didn't get enough. Could I have got some more? What else might I need? And did it help those who were really in need? Well, no, it didn't. The fruit is bad. But that's what worldly wisdom does. That's what happens when we make ourselves God and everyone else is there to serve and glorify us. Of course, not every human decision is devoid of godly wisdom. I'm not saying that it's impossible to exercise godly wisdom without knowing it as such, but simply that none of us will walk in it consistently without God's help. All of us tend towards being judgmental of others, of extending more grace towards ourselves than others. We kid ourselves that our motives are good, so we let ourselves off the hook. But we often assume the worst of other people's motives. Don't believe me? I'm not commenting one way or another, but just look at the last week's news cycle around Dominic Cummings. This way of always assuming the worst in others' motives and actions, of sitting in judgment over them, leads to disorder, division, envy, strife. This is the fruit of worldly wisdom. But the Bible teaches us that we should be patient, humble, gentle, To admit that we don't have the whole picture, not to judge others, but first to examine our own hearts, honestly, before God. So how then can we know and follow God's wisdom? Because presuming to know God's wisdom or will is really, really foolish, you know? People can often be heard to say things like, well, I don't think God would do that. Or my God would never allow something like that to happen. And you've got to ask, where are you getting that from? On what basis are you making that statement from your heart, from your instinct, from your imagination? Uh, All of those things are incredibly flawed and certainly not God. What people often mean, I've found, when they say things like, I don't think God would do, or my God would never allow, is what they're really saying is, I wouldn't do that, or I wouldn't allow that. (laughs) We're like that child who thinks it would be good to climb out of the upstairs window. But to know true wisdom and reject false wisdom... We need to open this. (laughs) We need an ever-increasing knowledge of the God of the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is breathed out 
by God and is useful for teaching, reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, which is the fruit of godly wisdom, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So how do you walk in true wisdom? You grow in a knowledge of the God of the Bible. Get around people who know God and who live out Scripture, who are serious about the things of God. Get in a church, if you're not already committed to one, where the Bible is taught and where the leaders model humility in living it out. There's life in these words. You know, I've heard people say, doctrine is deadly. It's a strange expression. Do you know what? Those people have utterly missed the point. Because right doctrine, that is lived out in in devotion, in response to the grace of God revealed in Christ Jesus, brings life. And not just life, but life to the full, true flourishing. It's what we were made for. Who doesn't want that? I know to my shame that I'm inclined at times towards wisdom that comes from below. And you know what? My guess is that you are too. But here's the good news. (laughs) Here's the good news. There's forgiveness and there's hope. The Bible tells us that because of the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross, when we humble ourselves, when we recognize our sin, when we confess it and ask God to forgive us, he is faithful and just to forgive us. We don't live condemned by our sin anymore. We can know forgiveness and freedom. And what's more, God has graciously given us his word so that we might understand how we are to live in his world for our flourishing and ultimately for his glory, and as if that wasn't enough. He's given us his Holy Spirit (laughs) to all who ask. He's poured out his Spirit to equip us and enable us to live in the good of his command to live in obedience, to walk in this kind of wisdom that yields a harvest of righteousness. Submit your life to Jesus. Open the word of God to discover the wisdom of God and ask the Holy Spirit to enable you to live in the good of it for the glory of God and the good of those around you. I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing one final song. Lord, we thank you that you, in your word, have given us your wisdom. Lord, but we recognize so often we think we know better. Lord, would you forgive us for the times that we've rebelled against you and believed that we know best. Would you forgive us for the times when we've turned our back on you and gone our own way? Lord, we thank you that you 
are gracious towards us that when we humbly come back to you and ask for forgiveness that you are faithful and just to forgive and that you willingly, gladly pour out your Holy Spirit on all who ask to equip us and enable us to live for your glory and to flourish the way that you designed us to. Lord, I pray this week you would help us to be those who walk in godly wisdom, who find joy and delight in your word and in living in obedience to it. For your glory. Amen.